Psalm 22, it's rather long, so you'll have to stay with it. Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has well melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before who those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. 
They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will down bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Do you recognize those words? The New Testament is written in Greek. That's the language that it's written in. But Matthew, in his account of Jesus' life in in his gospel, he writes the actual Hebrew words that Jesus spoke from the cross. And this is what Matthew reports in chapter 27, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And Matthew interprets this for his reader. He says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an incredibly profound moment in Matthew's Gospel. But why does Jesus say this? In that agony of the cross, struggling for breath, which is what crucifixion does to you, why does Jesus cry out loudly with these words? What does Jesus want them to hear and to understand by it? What does he want us to to hear and, and understand by crying out these words? Most of the people who were, who were listening there at, at the base of the cross, they, they misheard Jesus. Jesus says, Eli, Lama, and what they heard was Eliah, which is Elijah. But even if we hear the words rightly, if we miss their context, we could actually miss some of the depth of what Jesus is saying, some of the power of what he is saying from the cross. This song that we're looking at today... Psalm 22, as we just heard, it starts like this in the Hebrew, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in other words, Jesus on the cross is quoting this song. He's quoting Psalm 22. And he's saying loudly and clearly that we should understand what's happening to him there on the cross in the light of Psalm 22. So that's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to understand Psalm 22 in its original context 3,000 years ago. But we're also going to see what it says about what's happening there on the cross. And finally, we're going to consider what it says to us today as well. Now, do you remember last week, as Barb reminded us, that we saw that God's anointed, the King, the Messiah, was promised by God to be the victorious King. But this song, even though it's written by King David, it it doesn't sound very victorious, does it? It doesn't begin that way. It begins distraught. Look again at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? 
it's quite a confronting beginning. And look at how David goes on to describe his predicament using poetic language. Verse 12, many bulls surround me, encircle me, roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart's turned to wax, my mouth's dried up, you lay me in the dust of death, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. His situation sounds absolutely awful, miserable. It's not really possible for us to know exactly what's happening in David's life when he wrote this. But as I read it, I can't help but wonder if it's when David fled from Saul. Do you remember that story? David, he was married to King Saul's daughter. He was faithful to Saul, living in his court. But Saul's hatred and paranoia about David grew and grew and grew. Saul became more and more paranoid. He eventually ordered his henchmen to surround David's house so that when he came out, they would kill him. And David, in the end, he had to flee for his life with nothing. Literally, he fled out the window leaving behind clothes, taking no food, taking no weapons, leaving even his wife. And when he had fled, Saul gave his wife, Saul's own daughter, to another man. Maybe that's when David wrote this song. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that he would have been at a pretty low point. You could easily easily imagine him at that point saying these words in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Despite the fact that that David had been anointed by the Lord and, and promised that he'd be king over Israel, he found himself destitute, scorned for ever having trusted God, homeless, hunted, driven even from living among God's people. He'd reached rock bottom and he cries out to the Lord, but all he's met with is silence. Whatever the context was in which David writes this song, it's clear that what distresses him the most is this, the silence. This is David's real lament and this is what really worries him. Look at verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And this is our first point today. God's silence is painful. If you've ever cried out to God in desperation, in in anguish even, and you felt like God hasn't answered, then you know something of, of just how painful God's silence can be. You know, when a loved one is, is, is sick and getting sicker or when a child has, has walked away from God and, and just seems to be going further and further away from him, when you can't find work and, and things are getting more and more desperate or you're, you're sinking deeper and, and deeper into anxiety and depression or a partner is drifting further and further away from you and when you're crying out to God, And it seems like you're met with silence. It's painful. 
It's confusing. It's distressing. I'm, I'm guessing that all of us can relate to this. We've probably all had times where we've cried out to God with something that, that's important to us and, and we felt like God has, ans- has answered the cry of our heart with silence. But our situation is slightly different to what's happening here for David. Because God has never promised us actually that in this life those sorts of things will go smoothly for us. God promises us. He promises us all sorts of amazing, all sorts of wonderful things. But a smooth and happy and, and pain-free life, it's just not what God has ever promised us. A few years back, I, um, I met a uni student. I didn't know him very well at all. He sort of came once or twice to church and I caught up with him. And, and this guy, he'd been interested in this girl, but she wasn't interested in him. And he'd cried out to God, he told me, and he cried out to God and he lost sleep and he felt like he couldn't go on living. And even still, she hadn't been interested in him. God hadn't kind of zapped her to make her interested in him and, or zapped him to make him not interested. And so he'd felt forsaken by God. Now, I, I personally couldn't help but feel that God had been kind to this girl and helped her dodge a bullet. <laughs> I didn't really know this guy, but I could tell he was a bit too obsessive. And I gently tried to point out to him that God's not really like a cosmic love potion. But in his mind, God had failed him. And tragically, because of that, he didn't want anything to do with him. He walked away from God completely. I didn't doubt that that time was hard for him. It was obvious. But I did wonder how he'd come to feel so entitled that God ought to have stepped in for him. But then, there are other people that you meet that when you hear their stories, it's very different. You wonder why God hasn't stepped in. You wonder why on earth he hasn't done something to reverse their situation. It seems impossible to understand. And it's at times like that, particularly, that we need to remember what God does and doesn't promise in this life. God doesn't promise to shield us from the heartache and the hardship of this world. He promises to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. He promises to bring us safely through the heartache, through the hardship of this world, if we trust him. But he doesn't promise us in this life that we'll escape it. But for David, things are a little bit different than that. This is a very, a very different situation, actually. He was promised that he'd be king over God's people. That was the promise that God did make to him. And so now, surrounded by evil men, at death's door, his cry to God is is legitimate, unlike the lovesick uni student. His question, why have you forsaken me, springs from the fact that God had promised him that he would establish him as king over Israel. But notice, David is not like the lovesick uni student that I was talking about before, for another reason. David writes, My God, my God. Even in the midst of his pain and his confusion, he addresses God personally, personally and intimately. He's not giving up on God. His question springs from faith in God's promises 
And yeah, he's not holding back his lament. He's, he's not holding back his complaint even. He makes it loudly. But he makes his complaint as someone who still trusts in God, even though he doesn't understand what God's doing. Now, if we look closely, we can see some of the reasons for this. And this brings us to our second point. God's silence is temporary and it's part of the bigger picture. God's silence is temporary and part of a bigger picture. David trusts God because he sees something of that bigger picture. He feels like God is silent, but despite that, he says in verse 3, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David knows God's character displayed in history. He knows that God is the kind of God who listens to the cries of his people. Like God, when he said to Moses in Exodus 3, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Israel. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. David knows that God fought like a warrior against the might of Egypt, that he he ripped the sea apart even to save his people. He knows the strength and and the character of God written in the history of his people. And so while he might not be able to understand what is happening in his own life, what God is doing, he knows that he can trust God. And there's something else about the bigger picture that David knows people mock him for trusting in God even though it doesn't seem to be helping him but despite that in verse 9 he says yet you have brought me out of the womb you have made me trust in you even at my mother's breast from birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb you've been my God he knows that God won't be far from him because God has never been far from him God's character has been displayed even in the history of David's own life He looks back across his life and he knows that God has always looked out for him. And so even in the midst of his present struggle, he can pray and he prays confidently. He says in verse 11, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help me. And again in verse 19 he prays, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And in verse 21 he prays, Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me. Literally, he says, answer me. Answer me from the horns of the wild oxen. See, David laments while still trusting God. And he makes his prayer while still trusting God. And in this verse, we actually come to a turning point, which you might have noticed as Jan was reading it for us before. We come to a turning point in this song. David knows that God may not answer him till he's on the, on the very horns of the wild oxen. But he knows that God will answer him. He knows God's silence is only temporary and part of a bigger picture. So he doesn't stay in lament. He moves from lament to prayer. And here at this turning point in the song, he moves from prayer to praise. Now whether this part of the song, this second half of the song, was written after God had delivered David or or whether it was written after God had answered David, promising deliverance, 
Or perhaps it's simply the case that, that David, as he reflects on God's trustworthiness in Israel's past, God's trustworthiness in his own past, perhaps it's as he reflects on that, that he remembers and knows again that he can trust God to keep the promises that he's made him. Whatever the case may be, verse 24 captures the change in the tone of the song. David knows that God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Before in his affliction, David felt forsaken by God, but now he sees that God in his silence has not hidden his face from him. God's not despised him or scorned him, but has listened to his cry. And God is working his bigger purposes out through David's suffering. And so this brings us to our last point. God's silence is followed by our praise and thanksgiving. Look in verse 22. David says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, the the congregation, the church, I will praise you. But notice, it's not just David who praises God. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. And it's not just Israel that David calls to praise God. Somehow, God's deliverance of David has far wider implications. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And it's not just the nations in David's day. Listen to how the song ends in verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. The people of Israel suffering in Egypt, they must have looked to all the world like they were God forsaken. But through them, didn't God work something wonderful? God called a people to know him, a people to praise him. And he revealed his power and his compassion and and even his name to them. I am Yahweh. And he commissioned them to be a kingdom of priests to take that knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. Now David sees that through his suffering, though he looks to all the world to be God forsaken, through him God is again working something wonderful. God is calling him to be the king of his people, Israel. Not the king they wanted necessarily, but the king they needed. A king not like Saul. A king who would establish them and care for them, but a king especially who would lead them in the worship of God. It's exactly what God did through David. David was a king after God's own heart who wrote so many of the the songs of worship that we have in in the Psalms who brought the Ark of the Covenant into the centre of life in Israel and who paved the way for God's own temple to be built. Through David's suffering, God worked something wonderful. He established him in Saul's place to be the king that Israel needed. So that's the song in its original context. As Bob said, it's, it's a song that goes from bitter lament through to confident prayer, through to overflowing praise. So what was Jesus doing when he took up this song and made it his own? 
Psalm 22, it's, it's David's song. But it's so much more than that. It, it's really Christ's song. See, David, he sees his situation. But at the same time, he sees something of a distant, greater story, something of a, a greater fulfillment that God has in store. Now, for Christians, for us, it's, it's almost impossible for us not to, you know, to hear Psalm 22 and, and, and to stop our minds just jumping ahead to the greater story. We've got to force ourselves to actually consider this psalm in its original context and to consider what it means for David because straight away we can't help but hear what it's saying powerfully about the cross. In about 200 AD, a guy called Tertullian, he wrote that in the Psalms, David sings to us of Christ and through his voice, voice Christ indeed also sang concerning himself. This is so true in Psalm 22. You know, like David, people scoffed at Jesus. In Matthew 27 verse 40 we read, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. In verse 43, listen to this, they said, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Like David, the soldiers divide up his clothes. In verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Like David, Jesus is encircled by evil men. They pierce his hands and his feet. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. People stare and and gloat over him. And like David, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But unlike David, Jesus knows exactly why God doesn't answer him. He knows exactly why he's suffering. He knew that he'd come to be the anointed one and the afflicted one. Just hours earlier, Jesus had taken a cup of of wine. He said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knows that he's God forsaken on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Now, we'll never fully understand what's happening at the cross as Jesus takes the punishment of the world onto himself. The cross, it's it's not an innocent third party suffering on our part behalf yes jesus is an innocent party but he's not a third party the cross is the great i am yahweh the one who is enthroned on the praises of his people the cross is god the son dying in the place of his people god the son suffering the wrath of the father in his humanity in our place The cross is God the Father suffering the loss of his son. God doesn't despise the suffering of the afflicted. God is doing something wonderful through it. We'll never understand exactly what's happening in in that exchange at the cross. Probably the, the closest that we can come to understanding it is if we've ever been sinned against terribly, awfully, and yet we've managed to forgive that person. Maybe then we might be able to understand something of the cost because we'd understand that in order to forgive, the cost has to be absorbed either by the person who hurt you or by you. 
You know, think about it. If you're married, if, if your spouse was unfaithful, if you were to forgive them, the only way you could do that is by absorbing the pain of that, that sin against you into yourself. The cross is God doing something like that, but on an infinite scale. God taking our punishment, absorbing it into himself. So the cross tells us that our, our sin against God is that hurtful and offensive to him. But it also tells us that we are that valuable to God, that he's prepared to pay the highest price, price for us so that we won't perish. At the cross, Jesus really is God forsaken by God. But also, he doesn't want us to stop there in our thinking. He wants us to think of the whole of Psalm 22. Because, yes, he's the suffering one. Yes, he's the afflicted one. But, no, he's not despised by God, like the leaders think as they shake their heads at him. No, he's not abandoned by God. He's doing the Father's will. He's winning the salvation of the world. He's turning lament into prayer, into praise. The cross is painful. The cross is part of a bigger picture. And the cross is followed by our praise. You know, in Jesus' affliction, God was bringing about something wonderful, saving anyone who turns to him and leading this world into thanksgiving. So let me finish by briefly reflecting on what this psalm says to us today. It says to us, first of all, doesn't it, turn to Jesus? It says to us, put your trust in God, the, the God who has worked out his plan over thousands of years in breathtaking ways. The way Psalm 22 points to the cross is breathtaking. This song says to us, trust in what Christ has done for you to bring you forgiveness. It says to us, trust in him to lead us in giving praise to God. Have you done that? Have you decided that you want to follow Jesus? But it also has something to say to us about those times when we suffer and when we feel abandoned by God. Well, first of all, it says to us, it's okay to cry out to God in frustration and anguish. We too can bring our laments to God. We, we can bring our complaints. God's not scared of them. But it reminds us to bring them, remembering that though we might feel like God is silent, He has spoken to us clearly and loudly in the word of the gospel. Like David, we can look back at God's actions in history Jesus on the cross cries out to us louder than any circumstance we might find ourselves in. He cries out that we are loved by God and saved by God if we turn to him. And finally, this song says to us that while we might feel like God is silent at times in our lives, he will never despise our suffering. He doesn't. That's not the kind of God he is. Being afflicted, it, it doesn't mean we're forsaken. Silence doesn't mean that God's not with us. God listens. God hears. God works even through suffering. And through Jesus, he will turn our lament into praise. Someone once told me that this life 
is like a tapestry that we only get to see the back of. From the back, a tapestry just looks like a mess with threads going everywhere. And life, it can feel like that. It can just feel like a mess. Our suffering can feel impossible to understand. But God really is an artist who knows exactly what he's doing. We can trust him. We can cry out confidently when he seems silent. He has a plan. And one day, maybe not till Jesus returns, but one day we'll get to see that tapestry from the front and understand what he's doing. We'll get to see the bigger picture. And you know, on that day, we will praise him for all eternity because of what Jesus has done. As Psalm 22 says, he has done it. Let me pray. Father, your control over history, over all things, is astounding. That in David's own story, you can preempt Jesus' greatest story, his fulfillment. That in David's suffering and affliction to lead your people and be the king that they needed. That you could preempt the story of Christ, God the Son, the afflicted one, suffering on our behalf to bring us to you, fully accepted by you, able to praise you for all eternity. Lord, we thank you for the way that your plan has worked out over history and echoes of it are found throughout the Old Testament. Father, most of all, we thank you for Christ, for what he did for us, suffering in our place. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who does not despise our suffering, but you entered it in Christ in order to end it. Father, help us when we're in the mess of life, when things are awful, when we can't lift our heads above it, Lord, help us to keep looking back to the Christ, to the cross, to Christ on the cross, clinging to him, to hear what you are saying to us so loudly and clearly there, that you love us, that you have dealt with our sin and that through the cross you will end our suffering for all time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.